0: Welcome, this is EIG, Milwaukee's Philanthropic Community, with your host, Jill Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN.
1: Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for Milwaukee's Philanthropic Community, where we highlight people and organizations who are really doing great things and who make a big impact in our community. I'm your host, Jill Economo, and I'm the Director of Community Outreach at Ellen Becker Investment Group. So as you probably all know by now, the purpose of Milwaukee's philanthropic community is to interview nonprofits throughout the state and the country and some with an international reach so that we can highlight and bring awareness to the great work that these organizations do with the ultimate goal of informing and inspiring you so you can go out and make an impact yourself in some way. We also want to support the nonprofits in other ways. So in the past, we've offered educational seminars to all our guests. And more recently, we've, we've started interviewing organizations that help to support the nonprofits so that they can be the best they can be and continue to create impact in the world. My first guests today are Zach Doms and Frank Martinelli. And these guys have worked with nonprofits as consultants to help educate and support them in a variety of ways. So welcome to the show today, guys.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jill. Happy to be here. Thanks a lot, Jill. Happy to be here as well.
1: Well, we're happy to have you here today. Uh, Let's start with you, Zach. Your business is called Perennial Culture. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Perennial Culture and then why you felt that working with nonprofits on this idea of culture is so important?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Our name Perennial Culture was chosen specifically because of the meaning that Perennial has and our philosophy on the impact that culture can have within nonprofits. So let's start with perennial. So perennial is something that is lasting or existing for a longer, apparently, infinite time. It's continually recurring every year. It powers through the test of time and hardship and continually comes back stronger year over year. So we really believe that culture should also be built in a way that reflects the resilience and impact that a perennial has. Now, that's the perennial part. What is culture is also another question that I think is important to answer. Uh, Well, culture in our philosophy, as well as systemic energy that is created from behaviors, interactions, and the lack of interactions within an environment. So it's often referred to as the foundation of your organization. I like to call it the central operating system of your company. So what's interesting about culture is it's created from behaviors, but it also has the ability to influence future behaviors within the same environment. So both for your people internally, but also the people that you're interacting with in the community. So as a nonprofit, when you're looking to drive change and impact, especially sustainable impact, uh, culture is such an important tool in being able to do that. So. When a nonprofit takes that time to invest in culture and really systematically design it in a way that's aligned with the strategic direction and the impact that they're looking to create, you're going to be able to create so much more energy around that impact and ensure that it's realized in the long term.
1: And certainly, everybody can benefit from from that, um, meaning for profit as well as nonprofit. But I think you know, the nonprofits are out there and they have to tell their stories every day to the audience, to their board, to uh, for potential grants, um, you know, and understanding better a culture, I think would just be so helpful for them. Where do cultures come from? You know, what, what are the sources of culture?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's such a great question because culture does arise from many different elements. And I sometimes like to reference the typical iceberg model that kind of give a visual here, you know, you think about things at the tip of the iceberg, you know, it's your people, departments, processes, different types of systems, your brand, how you're perceived ex- like from external individuals, but the core sources of our cultures come from our shared perceptions and the way we view the world and what are our personal core values and then you start to see how those core values and perceptions interact with other people's core values and perceptions. And that interaction is really where our cultures come from. So those are, are really the main elements and they drive how we behave and see the world.
1: Well, how do you go from ecosystems to ecosystems?
3: <laughs> well, that's where we start to see perceptions become a little bit more aligned over a shared impact versus... Ego systems are more personally driven. They're more driven for the individual on what do I want and what am I trying to achieve? Ideally, in a nonprofit, you want individuals and a culture that's built on the impact that you're looking to create and drive within the world and not the personal impacts we're trying to gain for ourselves. Hmm. So it does take some strong alignment between the team to really move from an ecosystem to an ecosystem.
1: Well, that's, that's interesting. You know, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, The the impact, the collective impact, if you will, how do you effectively unlock greater collective impact?
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually, a, I think, a pretty simple strategy, yet can be extremely hard to do as well when you're maybe working in an ecosystem. But we really unlock this through typically a few steps. We we want to engage and empathize with the people that are within the culture itself. We want to bring the stakeholders who are within that environment into the conversation and hold space for those discussions collectively, and then start to co-create the future version of our culture together in a way that ensures buy-in and alignment with all of the different individuals involved. Typically, leaders will try to create some type of initiative and then kind of force it downstream. And and hopefully that kind of sustains itself uh, to have collective impact. There's more co-creation throughout the process.
1: When you think about systems thinking and culture, what do you think is the connection there?
3: Systems thinking and culture is connected because of the way culture is formed to begin with. It's formed from many small and macro elements interacting with each other and systems thinking is really a tool and a a philosophy and approach to culture that allows you to zoom out and see how it's formed from the collective, but also be able to zoom in a little bit more closely and see how specific interactions and relationships are happening. So then you'll be able to find much more impactful intervention points or strategies to reinforce a, a culture in a certain way. Uh, so it's a really effective tool to do that.
1: Well, I think we would all admit that we want to be effective culture change agents, right? How might someone become a more effective culture change agent, which would be a goal, I think, for for all of us?
3: Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful goal and something we're obviously striving to empower leaders and, and all types of people with. Uh, But there's a lot of methods and tools that leaders and individuals can learn to impact cultures and be effective culture change agent like system thinking techniques, being able to understand the greater picture around things and how they are formed. Other design thinking tools are also very uh, effective ways of starting to kind of collaborate, co-create and do some different type of emergent thinking and generate ideas collectively um, so I, that's where probably two spaces I would educate any individual right away is systems thinking and design thinking techniques.
1: Okay. Well, you certainly have a lot of really great ideas for these nonprofits to grab onto, to be thinking about. Um, what would you say are some foundational cultural elements that nonprofits should have to thrive and also to sustain themselves in today's world?
3: One that I actually see nonprofits doing the best at, which is one of the most foundational elements, is a aligned and central purpose of why we are existent, right? Like without that, you really don't have a bonding factor between your teammates and the community that you're looking to impact. So having a really clear and identified purpose is foundational to your culture. From there, it's different types of things like the vision of the future that you're looking to, you know, evolve the world into, your core values around how you operate, and a effective strategic direction and business strategy as well that's aligned with that purpose statement that you have at the core. And then things like wellness and diversity and equity and also things like performance management are also things that can really drive sustainable change and culture within your organization.
1: Well, I'm sure we could go on and on uh, about all the different ways that you can help a nonprofit to thrive and sustain themselves. But unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time uh, in this segment, but I appreciate you sharing all that great information. If there's a nonprofit out there that, or a for-profit for that matter, that wants to contact you for further information, you want to throw your contact information out there for us?
3: Yeah, it's it's just easy enough to go to perennialculture.com. There's some links in there to contact us right away. Or if you're to sign up for our newsletter, that's an easy way to get in touch as well. Uh, But yeah, we can respond pretty quick if you head to that space.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for sharing today. So we should all understand by now, according to uh, the information Zach shared, on why building and sustaining a culture for your nonprofits is so important. And again, you can reach out to Zach at Perennial Cultures to learn more about how they can help well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're going to talk about another important element to sustaining a healthy, growing, impactful nonprofit. So stay tuned.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This is EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community, with your host, Julie Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Jill Economo, and I'm talking in this segment with Frank Martinelli, Senior Consultant from the Center for Public Skills Training. Frank is also a TEDx presenter and uh, has worked with numerous nonprofits in the area of strategic planning and beyond. So again, welcome to the show, Frank. Why don't you start by telling us, in your work with nonprofits, what has been their priority in terms of needs?
2: There are several needs that come up uh, whenever a survey is done of uh, nonprofit capacity building needs, and uh, it's reflected in, in the local scene as well. Strategic planning, work to develop the board of the organization, efforts to make it more effective no big surprise, fund development and fundraising. And I might mention that a lot of times uh, when the initial thought is we need to work on fund development, often the discovery is that work on strategic planning and board development may need to come first to set the foundation for effective fundraising. Mm.
1: Okay. Well, let's let's talk more about that then. Let's Let's talk about the value and the importance of strategic planning, specifically for nonprofits. What what are some of the factors that set the stage, if you will, for successful strategic planning?
2: Sure. There are a few few things that are particularly important. Uh, To begin with, a shared understanding of strategic planning. Uh, That term is used in in so many different ways that while we're on this journey together in a nonprofit, it's just important for us to come at the, uh, the notion of strategic planning in the same way, to be on the same page. I think another important characteristic uh, would be a, a real commitment to the process. It takes time. Uh, we don't want it to take forever, but planning the future of an important organization, so a time commitment from both the staff and the board of directors. Another important uh, element would be agreement on the outcomes for the process. Sometimes organizations uh, really want to take a more comprehensive look in their strategic planning. Other times, the focus might be on one issue. Uh, so again, it's important to be on the same page. Uh, we're talking about strategic planning in a nonprofit organization. And so it really has to be led by the board of directors. That's why the board is called a governing board. It's responsibility to set the course. Uh, and then even though it's the board that makes the final decision, so to speak, uh, we want a process that is inclusive and involves lots of people. Lots of ideas make for a better strategic planning outcome. And then finally, uh, to make sure that the process is structured to encourage a certain level of boldness and risk-taking and creativity. We don't want a process that just ends up as same old, same old.
1: Mm, All those things are so important, right? You know, and it's no surprise that uh, it's been a very challenging time for nonprofits, what strategies and approaches would you say have have helped these nonprofits to respond and even thrive?
2: Jill, it's really exciting to see how nonprofits in our community and really throughout the country have risen to the challenge of the last year and a half. Some of the strategies that have been adopted, piloting or or trying out different ways to deliver on the mission, in particular in virtual and remote modes would be one right off the bat. I think another strategy, uh, nonprofits worked to really maintain and deepen their presence and connection with their various stakeholders, supporters, funders, collaboration partners. Another would be to position the nonprofit uh, to be able to pivot really quickly in response to emerging new normals so that if it is possible to begin to move again uh, more toward face-to-face delivery of services, the organization is able to do that fairly quickly. And then if there's a need to shift back to more reliance on remote modes to be able to do that fairly quickly as well. Uh, The other exciting thing is uh, nonprofits increasingly are looking to explore uh, strategic restructuring options with other nonprofits to uh, not try to go it alone during these challenging times. And of course, it's always about advancing the mission. That's why a strategic restructuring, a partnership of some kind would be on the table. And then for some organizations, they've begun to look at advocacy and public policy work as a complement to the provision of direct services. So those would be a couple of the strategies that have just really risen in, in the sector. Mm.
1: and i I like your piece on uh, your talk about collaboration because we we talk about on the show how important that piece is, you know, just working together for a common goal and not one nonprofit can do it all, right So you know that collaborative piece is is so key. I've been reading more and more lately about the need to increase diversity of nonprofit boards. I think it was the biz times or maybe the Waukesha County Business Alliance newsletter, where I just read another article about that this morning. For nonprofits that want to address this important issue, what what advice would you have in that area?
2: Well, a few thoughts right off the bat. I I think it's important to think of diversity and the need to increase diversity in relation to the mission of the organization. One size doesn't fit all. So I think diversity reflects uh, the mission, our deep purpose in the community. I think uh, especially in a place like uh, Milwaukee, we need to consider race, gender, age, class, Uh, cognitive and other mission relevant factors and so there are a lot of different ways that we can come at diversity at the same time I think especially in the last year we've come to understand the importance of racial and ethnic diversity especially in the board of directors and then if it's something important There needs to be a concrete plan with defined outcomes and accountability. It can't just be good intentions. There needs to be a plan. And then I might also add that uh, nonprofits that want to increase diversity, especially of their board of directors, to begin to look at their committee structure, their work group structure as the place where a new generation of leaders engage with the nonprofit, and then develop their leadership skills. Mm,
1: great information. What do you see as the connection between building internal organizational capacity of nonprofits and then the culture work that Zach Doms is involved in? Uh,
2: lots of connections to be made. I've heard Zach and other culture experts uh, intone the expression, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think it's just a reminder that we can go through mechanically the steps of effective strategic planning. But if we don't have a culture that supports this strategic direction, it's just not going to work. Uh, And uh, so I think it's really important to think about that connection between organizational culture, as Zach has begun to describe it, and the ability to actually become the organization of our dreams and deliver the strategic plan that we've really become excited about. Uh, I, I think it's also important, especially in terms of board development, if we want a board that really exhibits a future focus Real strategic thinking on an ongoing basis, well, there has to be a board culture that supports that. It's not going to work if culture is out of alignment with that strategic future focus uh, that I think most of us aspire to. Uh, And then certainly culture connects to themes of increasing diversity. Uh, We need to build a culture of diversity and inclusion if we're going to support efforts to diversify our leadership within the board and throughout the organization. And I think just to maybe make the same point uh, again a little differently, uh, you can have Best and next organizational practices in mind. This is the kind of organization that we really want to be, but they don't work with the kind of organizational culture that uh, Zach has been talking about.
1: Again, all great stuff. As I said with Zach, you're sharing some really great things. We don't have enough time to get to uh, all the different things that you're uh, able to help a nonprofit with. But let me just end with this question. Why do you think nonprofits are important in the work to build a just and thriving Milwaukee?
2: Well, we could talk forever, uh, and I realize time is short, but I think in so many different ways, uh, a community like Milwaukee simply wouldn't function without a thriving nonprofit sector. I mean, we say the same thing about effective government, an effective and engaged corporate sector. Well, the same applies to the nonprofit sector as well. I think uh, many of the leaders that we see in corporations and in government, uh, if you ask, where did you get your start being a leader? Many of those individuals will tell you that their involvement began in a nonprofit organization as a volunteer or as a board member. I think without the work of nonprofits, a lot of the important uh, and really pressing human needs uh, that have grown in the last year simply wouldn't be met. I'm not even sure what it would look like if we didn't have nonprofits in place to provide needed services to the many individuals in need. Uh, And so maybe just to sum up, we need to recognize that nonprofit organizations and our community are, in a sense, learning and doing laboratories for sustainable, system-informed solutions to community problems. I know that that's a mouthful, but I think that's the value of nonprofits. Uh, Mm. We can't build a future without a thriving nonprofit sector. I agree.
1: Thank you for sharing with us how you're helping the nonprofits in our area thrive. If someone wants to connect with you, Frank, what's, what's the best way to do that?
2: Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, certainly, uh, but email frank at the future.com should do it.
1: Frank at the future.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us in the interview today, Frank.
2: Thanks again, Jill.
1: You're welcome. Well, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but when we return, you're going to hear from another great nonprofit that does great work in our city. They actually work with Frank, so we'll hear about the impact that has made on their organization. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community, with your host, Jill Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN.
1: Welcome back to Milwaukee's philanthropic community brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group. I'm your host, Jill Economo. And my next guest today is Jean Geraci from the Benedict Center. Welcome to the show today, Jean.
4: Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having us.
1: You're welcome. Before we get to how you work with Frank, let's learn a little bit more about the Benedict Center. Tell us tell us your mission or your
4: vision. Thank you. Well, the Benedict Center is a leading provider of services and advocacy for women in the criminal justice system in Milwaukee County. And in addition to the direct services, we also advocate for a system of justice that is fair and treats everyone with dignity and respect.
1: You focus on women Mm -hmm. uh, in the criminal justice system. Tell us why.
4: Well, perhaps the biggest reason why is because women's unique needs in the criminal justice system are very much overlooked in a system that was primarily designed and primarily incarcerates men. And it's important to note what those differences are for women. Justice-involved women have higher rates of trauma and victimization. They have higher rates of mental health and substance use disorders. Justice-involved women are mothers. 70 to 80% are mothers. Wow. And so we're impacting families and future generations there. And the majority of justice-involved women do not commit violent crimes. And yet, the rate of incarcerated women is now growing faster than that of men. It's been over a 700% increase in recent years.
1: 700%?
4: Incredible, right?
1: Wow. Okay. So we know why you focus on women, but... Can you tell us now how, then, the Benedict Center helps these women?
4: Thank you. Well, our specialty, our niche, is providing counseling and case management and support services for justice-involved women. We are a licensed outpatient drug and alcohol counseling and mental health counseling center. But we consider ourselves different from just your average mental health and substance treatment uh, clinic we also consider ourselves to be advocates for individuals as they're navigating through that maze of the criminal justice system which can really get people caught up and then finally while the direct services are very important, we recognize that without getting to the root cause, without creating some systems change work, we're not going to be able to make the impact we want to see. So our systems change really focuses on promoting public health approaches to substance use, mental health, and trauma instead of criminalization. And there's that
1: systems change word that Zach talked about in the first segment, right? That's right. Um, Yeah, so important. Can you describe more about the direct services and the individual advocacy.
4: Absolutely. I think the best way to explain it is to give you a real life example. So if I could just touch on the overview of one of the women in our program, her name is Lisa. And if you can imagine, Lisa, at age 42, had already been incarcerated 46 times. So if we think that incarcerating people magically changes them or even works as a deterrent, it doesn't. We have to address people's underlying needs. So our staff connected with Lisa when she was incarcerated at the House of Correction, Milwaukee County House of Correction, where we run the women's reentry program right inside of that facility. Lisa suffered from a lifetime of complex trauma, severe and persistent mental health, and she was chronically homeless. We first were able to connect and establish trust and a relationship with her at the House of Correction. And then it came time for her to be released. Well, you know, she was booked during the summer. She was released in the winter. What did she need most? Winter clothes. Mm-hmm. So very, very basic sometimes, right? Winter clothes and a cell phone in order to keep people in touch. Uh the caseworker was able to help ensure that her social security disability was turned back on. Her food share was turned back on so that she would have those benefits because all of that shuts down when you're incarcerated, getting her connected to mental health services and making sure that She actually it wasn't just here's a phone number, but actually making sure that that connection happens so that she could take care of those underlying issues after she was released. And then perhaps most meaningful of all, being able to work with our housing partners to get her connected to long term supportive housing. So now she has an efficiency apartment. It's pretty hard to manage mental health symptoms to not use to stabilize one's life when you're homeless. And in Lisa's case, she she really needs that supportive housing. And so I'm happy to share with you that she has not been incarcerated since she's been released. And that's the kind of difference that we can make in people's lives. Mm,
1: that's wonderful. And what I love hearing is that you're looking at this, at least in this case, as a whole person. You know, you're not looking at her as a case study, for example. You know, you're looking at her as a person. What are her needs? And then addressing those needs. And so that's wonderful.
4: That's right. Nobody exists in a vacuum. And people's lives are complex. And how do we know what Lisa needs? We ask her, you know, we have to start by defining success, defining goals as, as the place where the women that we're working with They know themselves best. They know what they need best, really, in a lot of cases. And so while we might be specializing in mental health, if housing is what she is saying she needs the most, then that's where we have to start.
1: And it seems so simple, right? You know, just ask the question. I mean, the answer might be pretty involved, but it starts with asking the question, right?
4: It really does. And so often we can have great intentions and make great efforts at providing help that no one's asking for. So Mm. we're really going to be more effective if we actually listen and let let that be client directed.
1: Mm, That's great. What an impact you've made in Lisa's life, right? And I'm sure many, many others as well. We're just going to take a quick break right now. And when we return, we're going to talk more about that impact piece, you know, the impact that you guys make in our community. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This is EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community, with your host, Julie Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN.
1: Welcome back to Milwaukee's Philanthropic Community, brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group. I'm your host, Jill Economo, Director of Community Outreach, and I'm talking in this last segment today with Jean Geraci from the Benedict Center. Let's talk community impact. We love to hear how a nonprofit is having an impact in our city and beyond. So what kind of impact do your direct service programs have?
4: That's a really great question, and it's layered. So It's very important, and I think, thanks to the United Way so many years ago, the idea of measuring our outcomes and being able to actually know if we're making a difference uh, has become much more mainstream. And so we, like other nonprofits, we start by measuring basics, like how many people do we serve in a year? And for us, that's about 900 women in, in a year We also want to know, though, not just how many women do we talk to or do we have enrolled, but what difference does it make? in the lives of women to be in our program that's really how we measure impact and so we actually use some united way survey questions to ask women and uh just most recently in 2020 87% of women said that being involved in our programs helped them progress towards their goals and remember earlier we talked about the fact that we ask women to identify uh, what those goals are. And they can be adjusted as they as they achieve them. There's always more to do. Uh, we also care that if we're connecting people with resources, that that is a warm handoff, that the resource connection is actually helpful, as opposed to just giving people some flyers and phone numbers and telling them good luck. Uh, 95% of women said that the resources that we connected them to were helpful. And finally, we care, uh, and perhaps this goes to the culture question that Zach was talking about earlier. We care that when women are here, they feel safe, they feel welcomed, and they feel like they were treated with dignity and respect, which is our driving value. And there I'm happy to report that 99% of women reported that we treated them with dignity and respect.
1: Mm, That's wonderful. So, so crucial, I think, right? You talked before about getting to the root of the problem, one of those key elements. And it's been said that if you're unable to understand the root cause of a problem, that it's impossible to solve the problem. So let's go back to systems change work. You talked about that briefly in the last segment. Can you explain how you at the Benedict Center change
4: systems Thank you so much. This is something I'm really passionate about. Uh, And again, I think that the best way that I might be able to describe it is by giving you an example of how we're doing it right now. So if you look at our sister's program, that is a program designed to work with women in the street based sex trade, including women who are sex trafficked. And women told us that their greatest barrier to exiting the streets and living a better life was housing. I'll never forget a time when we were closing up our drop-in center, and one of the women in our program, we closed at 4.30. She had to leave. She said, Jean, where am I supposed to sleep? Where am I allowed to sleep? We had tried to call shelters all that day, and they were all full. And she said, you know, when I go to sleep in a public space, like at a park, then the police come and they tell me I've got to move along. Where am I allowed to sleep? And that haunted me and it broke my heart really and I and I vowed we were going to find housing solutions for sisters and so here's how we approached it we started with a partnership with the Medical College of Wisconsin and we were able to conduct a study a survey uh, of women to find out how many women are homeless and to really put some numbers around that and we learned that Nearly 50% of the women that we surveyed were, in fact, homeless. That kind of data gave us a little bit more fodder, if you will, to approach partners and say, you know, we need to look at a bigger systems change. The issue with the Benedict Center is that we don't provide direct housing. We provide behavioral health services. We could try and raise a lot of money and develop a shelter. And maybe That shelter could serve 12, 20 women at a time. But the reality is the need is so much greater than that. And so how do we create a large community-wide impact? It has to be through systems change. And because we weren't a housing provider, our solution was to form strategic partnerships with housing system providers. And in doing that, We've been able to leverage and impact women in, in such a great way. Out. I can get to that in a moment. But part of the systems change issue was really redefining the problem. A lot of people see the street-based sex trade and they say prostitution's a problem. Those women are the problem. The reality is those are women who have problems. And what are their key underlying problems? A lot of people might not realize they are homeless, that this is a homelessness issue. And so for defining a problem more accurately, we're going to be able to come up with a solution in a better way. And so by defining the problem as a homelessness issue, by partnering with uh, a strategic partnership with the housing system, we've been able to bring resources together in a way that have not been brought together for this specific population. And as a result, we're getting more women into housing than we ever have before. There's a client caller CW for privacy's sake. She had been using drugs and involved in in the street-based sex trade for several years, and we had worked with her in the past. More recently as an emergency stopgap, because our winters are so very cold, we started keeping our drop-in center open 24 hours so that women would have a safe place to stay at night. We call it our warming room. So she had stayed in our warming room this past winter, and then suddenly our whole world changed, Mm -hmm. right? this pandemic happens. And we realized that our warming room, which is like dormitory style beds and sleeping was not going to be COVID safe. We are gonna have to close it early. We hope to take it into April and here we are March 19th and we have to close. We worked closely with the housing division with Impact 211 to try and come up with a, a plan, an emergency housing plan for each woman that was there. And in CW's case, because of her underlying health issues, We were able to secure an emergency hotel voucher for her. Very nervous about this idea of uh, going into a hotel, but she was grateful to have a place to go. It was still pretty cold in in March, if you remember. She said, "Um, okay, um, I'll go. But you know what else? I'm ready. I'm ready to start drug treatment would you take me to this place, uh, CMS, it's called, it provides medication-assisted treatment for people who have opioid use disorders. And so she said, I'm, I'm ready to try. And so uh, the way you get in is you have to get there really early in the morning. And I remember her story so well because I actually had to staff staff um, the warming room that last night. Myself and the sisters program director, we we spent the night there, and in the morning she needed a ride at five a.m. to get to CMS. And I I said, it's the end of my shift. I'm happy to take you. I went there. We have an opioid epidemic in Milwaukee. That line uh, to get into that building was wrapped around the building, and it was a little bit of everyone. Five a.m. in the morning. She got in line. I lent her my jacket because she didn't have one. (laughs) And I said, call. And um, once she got in, she said, it's going to be some hours. I'll call when I'm ready. She started her treatment at that point. And from the hotel, we were able to move her to something called a safe haven, which is more transitional housing. And then we're able to help her get into an apartment of her own with a housing voucher. She Mm -hmm. has maintained uh, not using illicit opioids or street drugs uh, that entire time. And now she's so excited. She wants to be able to give back. She wants to become an advocate. She wants to do street outreach with our program and she wants to show other women the way uh, Mm -hmm. to to that kind of recovery and so for me that's the perfect example of when everything is lined up when the resources are there when someone's ready to make that choice and the resources are there too often there's waiting lists there's gaps and if we didn't have the strategic partnerships with the housing division with impact 211 that connection to housing resources wouldn't have been available that's wonderful so we'd like Um, to scale that up
1: (laughs) absolutely great we love to hear success stories I understand that the Benedict Center hired Frank Martinelli, a nonprofit consultant, to facilitate that strategic planning process that you went through. So how does a strategic plan help you advance the mission of the Benedict Center? And why did you think you needed a consultant to help you with it?
4: Well, the Benedict Center has been providing services for women for 48 48- hours years and counting. And as stewards, the board and the staff really have to make sure that our mission is still relevant to community needs and that our programs are still effective and impactful in meeting that, that uh, mission, if you will. And how do we say sustainable into the future? Right now, we're living in unprecedented times and strategic plan asks us Uh, These questions. How do we plan for uncertainties? How do we identify critical issues? By the way, these are the questions that Frank has taught us. (laughs) And uh, we hired Frank because of not only his great experience in strategic planning, but he is a practitioner and a teacher and a supporter of systems thinking and advocacy. And so In uh, Frank Martinelli, we knew we had a match um, in terms of uh, a strategic planning consultant that would understand us and help us raise our game, if you will. The reason why we need an outside facilitator is that you need someone who can help from a more objective perspective to ask hard questions, to help tease out those critical issues, and frankly, someone who's experienced in... I will say the art and science of strategic planning. You could get a book, but in my working with Frank and We're In Touch weekly, I'm just so aware that he has this wisdom and this knowledge and this experience that you can't access unless you've done it. And, um, and so for us, that's been really important. I think it's important for the community to know that just like in business, you have to invest in the leadership and the infrastructure of an organization. So when we're supporting the internal development of nonprofits, it's as important as supporting its programs. So it's really a strategic investment to leverage future benefits for the community when we can fund uh, strategic planning and uh, support nonprofits to hire skilled facilitators.
1: Well, there's, uh, there's an opportunity for your nonprofits out there then to reach out to Frank and Zach. How can we, the community, the audience, help the work of the Benedict Center, Gene?
4: Women we serve are invisible. They're locked up, out of sight, out of mind. And I wanna thank you for listening and, and, and ask to please continue to learn about the lives of the women in the justice system and how programs like the Benedict Center can help them improve their lives. I'd ask for you to consider giving second chances. If you own a rental property or you employ people, consider giving people who have a criminal record a second chance. It could be just what they need to turn their lives around. And finally, I'd invite you to visit our website at www.benedictcenter.org for ways to get involved, whether that's volunteering, attending an event, or even donating. Again, our website is benedictcenter.org.
1: Super. Well, thank you for participating in the show today, Jean, and for sharing how you the Benedict Center are making a difference in the criminal justice system for women specifically. So thanks for participating today. If you'd like further information about what we talked about today, or if you'd like to be considered as a guest on the show, you can email me at jill at ellenbecker.com, or you can call our office at 262 691-3200. Join us next Sunday morning at 10 to learn more about the ways people and organizations are making a difference and contributing to making our community a better place to live and work. You can tune into News Talk 1130 on your radio or you you can listen on your cell phone via the iHeartRadio app. I encourage you to visit our website at ellenbecker.com to listen to previously aired shows or you can also listen on demand at Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or Apple Podcast. So think about how you can share the information you heard today and also how you can plug in and get involved with a nonprofit that speaks to your heart and one that feeds your soul. I strongly believe that by finding a way to be a blessing, you will ultimately give a blessing tenfold. So thank you for listening and have a great day.